Well, thank you all for coming out. Great turnout. And, um, you know, we're in, we're in a, a very strange time here in D.C. And I know some of you were here the last time we ended up in a government shutdown. So we've heard stories and things. You know, this morning I'm just having some coffee. My stomach's feeling a little funny. And I don't know, um, you know, one of the downfalls of government shutdown are the cafeterias aren't staying open quite as often. And, um, I went to one of the vending machines and took a chance on a frozen dinner yesterday. Not sure that was the right thing to do. Is it okay? But I think I'm starting to see the effects now. Um, don't know how long it's in there. Um, the other thing, you know, um, I have fabulous staff. As you know, Josie, my scheduler, and Alan, my chief of staff, are with me. I usually have one of my staff helps get me from place to place, um, driving me, and of course I am without that person now. And so I am in flat, I am in flip-flops this morning. Um, it's helping me again walk from place to place. Mike Kelly, if, if Mike Kelly um, picked me up on the way and said, Renee, I'm gonna give you a ride over there. Are you going to Ripon? And I said, yeah. He said, okay, well then I'll get you there without you being out of breath. So. Um, so we, again, we're all adjusting, you know, we're, we're all having to do without and, and making do, but I do appreciate all of you uh, being here. And you know, I do want to say a few words about the Republican Women's Policy Committee and our project grow over at the NRCC, uh, because we feel very strongly that we have got to advance the profile of women in Washington, um, the jobs that we're doing, but you know, the Republican Party as a whole has got to do a better job reaching out to women, um, making sure that they understand that the issues that we are talking about in Washington are the issues that the American people care about, but most importantly, women. And I think that we are bringing a different perspective to the table. There are only 19 of us in the Republican conference. We're only 8% of our conference. And we need to get more women here. And that's one of our objectives. You know, both um, fronts, whether it's Project Grow or the Republican Women's Policy Committee. We're highlighting all the work in the Republican Women's Policy Committee that the members of Congress, our colleagues, are doing. You know, every day we're working on important issues. We have a website. If you go to at Ladies GOP, it'll get you there. That's our Twitter handle. Yes? Right? Um, I'm, I'm really bad when it comes to this stuff. I depend on my staff for these things. Um, <laughs> But the, the point being that we have got to do a better job and we have to be helping each other and working together as, as a group to help empower all of us and hold each other up. And we're there for each other. We, we are a, a great group of women that, that we serve with. Everyone coming from different perspectives, everyone serving in a little bit of a different way, but all just incredible, incredibly hard workers. There's not one woman in our conference that is not on the go at any given moment, just constantly. And if you can imagine, you know, being here in Washington, having family back home, you know how difficult that that can be. And especially, I think, as for women. Project Grow, um, that is another, again, uh, perspective that we have to help raise the profile of the women that we have in Congress. But we're working hard to get more women elected. Recruitment is a big part of that. But also, you know, just women across the country. We need to make sure that we're going out and, and meeting with women and making them or helping them to understand that, you know, it's not just about, you know, 
birth control and abortion and you know those aren't the issues that you know that's part of it but you know we're women are worried about how they're paying the bills why gas prices are so high the price of you know groceries milk eggs when you go to the grocery store why are those things happening we understand and women have such good input and we have to be the ones to push that issue so you know look there there is no one that is in our conference all of the women in our conference are incredibly strong. They are very motivated. Um, you know, it, there's there's always that competition between them, between all of us. But at the same time, we are helping each other as well. And I think that's that's one of the most important pieces. We're there for each other. We 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 fight for each other. And uh, you know, there again, if we don't do it, um, you know, we love our male colleagues, but you know, they're not necessarily going to do it for us. So, with that, um, I'd like to start to introduce first uh, Marsha Blackburn. Um, she is our vice chair on energy and commerce, doing a fabulous job. She's incredibly dedicated in her sixth term, representing the seventh district of Tennessee. Um, in, in addition to the Energy and Commerce Committee, she's also on the Budget Committee. She's our representative for Energy and Commerce. She is actually one of the founding members of the Republican Women's Policy Committee. She and Mary Bono Mack um, really saw, you know, saw what was coming. The 2012 election, we didn't do so well with women across this country, but they saw it coming. And they said, you know what, we've got to do a better job with the women who are here because a number of us were elected in 2010. We've got to bring everybody together. And so the Republican Women's Policy Committee was formed and it started there. And we've been able to do you know, a lot of work from that point on. But there again, she saw that there was going to be a need. Little tidbit of information, she is also um, the founding congressional, she is the founding member of the Congressional Songwriters Caucus and chairs that. Um, didn't know that there was one, I'm learning. Um, and, al <laughs> and also, <laughs> she is a Grammy Award winner. In, 2010, in 2007, she was awarded the Congressional Grammy by the Recording Academy for her support of arts and intellectual property rights. Please help me welcome Marsha Blackburn. Thank you, Renee. And I think we are all so thrilled to be here with you and to have your interest in the Republican Women's Policy Committee. As Renee said, Mary and Sue Myrick and I, along with Kay Granger, kind of stewed over what we were picking up as being a war on women that was coming our way and we sought to do something effective about it not only with elevating the women and i think so many of you in this room who have worked diligently with us to help raise the profile of women here in congress but also to help our male colleagues not trip over their words and, uh, and so we decided we would take it from the positive and that there had to be a female view of every issue that came around. So we would formalize this as a women's policy committee to put the emphasis on the different policies. And, you know, timing-wise, it works really well when you look at what is happening in society. Women are now 53% of the electorate. 
Women hold 52% of all jobs, 47% of all households are headed by female breadwinners, with the woman's paycheck exceeding the level of the men's paycheck. And these are just stats. Uh, you look at new car buys. Women make over 50% of all new car purchases. And most importantly right now, when you look at who pays the family bills, 75% of all households report that the checkbook is managed by the mom, and 80% of all healthcare decisions are made by women. So it is imperative that we work with and help and assist through the policy committee and Project Grow, our male colleagues who are seeking to get a footing with how they appropriately communicate in a current, concise, succinct method with all of those, their women, their female constituents. So Renee is doing an incredibly wonderful job. We are so excited with the way she is moving this forward and we are appreciative that all of you have the interest in helping and supporting us. Thanks, Renee. Next, I'd like to introduce my colleague, um, Diane Black. Diane Black is also um, one of our new class, well I shouldn't say new, we're actually sophomores now, um, that was elected along with myself and uh, Martha Roby in 2010. Um, she represents Tennessee's sixth district. She again is in her second term with us. Um, she is on the she's on the Ways and Means Committee. Um, she is also she also subcommittee sub uh, chair for oversight, and she is also on the House Budget Committee representing Ways and Means. You know, before coming to Congress, she also was a nurse uh, with 40 years of experience in healthcare. Um, she is the first member of Congress to have a piece of legislation um, signed into law. Signed into law by the president. If you don't know this, there have actually been seven uh, pieces of legislation that the president has signed into law that actually changes Obamacare or takes away from some of these things. She is actually the first member of Congress to have one of those bills signed into law, saving the American taxpayers $13 billion. Please help me welcome Diane Black. Thank you, Renee, and thank you for the job that you're doing. Thank you, Marsha, for the job that you did to plow the ground before we got here. Uh, but we have still got a lot of ground to plow. When you only have 19 members of a 233-member conference, and um, we have to get our voice out there and be known, because although I love my male colleagues, they do look at things a little differently. You know what? Um, I honor that. God made us different. There are a whole lot of books that are written about men and women trying to understand one another. And uh, so there's no surprise to that. that. That would also be the way as we look at policy. Um, our male colleagues look at it one way, and sometimes I learn things from them, and hopefully they're learning things from us. But that has already been said, 53% of the electorate is um, female. And we have got to make sure that our message is getting out there. Uh, Marsha talked about a lot of statistics, but one that I want to add to that is that more small businesses are begun today by females than are males. And so we know that women are very interested in the very 
kinds of basic fundamental um, issues that are so conservative, so Republican, and that is that we want pro-growth and a free economy. And so when we talk to women, as Renee said, we've got to get away from what so many times we get put into a box. We get, into put, in, we get put into a box about reproductive issues. And as we are not, um, not one in anything that we do, we have, an, I'll do anatomy because I am a nurse, so we have a brain and we have a heart and we have a whole lot of other things besides reproductive issues. And so we can talk about things that reproductive issues. And we can, we can differ on that even, um, but don't put us in a box. Because what I find as I go out and talk to women's groups, and sometimes it is putting your foot in the areas where you're maybe not as welcome because they know what, how strongly you feel about that particular issue, is to say, let's not get into a box. There are a whole lot of other aspects of what we can agree on and that are probably even more important to you, as has already been said, your daily life of what you have to deal with whether it's making a decision of how you pay for the gas and get those kids to where they need to go so that you can get to work, so that you can take care of your mom and dad who have health care needs, because women are taking care of so many things today. And we have got to make sure that message is out there. Renee is doing a great job on Project Grow. One thing I do want to add to that is that, yes, we are trying to recruit good female candidates. And as Renee has always reminded me, um, that women have to be asked. It's not like males who normally will make that decision on their own. Women want someone to ask them, so we know that. We're finding out more about how we can get out there and ask the right women to come and join us here in this fight on the Hill. Uh, but the other thing that we're doing is we're not giving up when we find a good woman who just says, the time is not right for me, because they do make decisions differently. You know, If I have a kid that's 10, a kid that's 13, even though their husband says, go and do it, honey. I can take care of it. I've had them say to me, it's not that everything won't be okay without me being there. It's what I will miss. It's what I will miss that will make the difference. So what we're trying to do is keep those women engaged so that when the time is right, we've already cultivated them. Uh, they're a part of who we are, and we keep good contact with them. We help, we ask them to help us in their communities to identify other women that they believe the time is right for them. And we have got to do that so that we don't come upon every election cycle going, oh boy, scratch your head, who are we going to get this time? Let's cultivate those women so that when the time is right for them, they can come and join us in this fight. Thank you, for, Renee, for what you do, Marsha, for what you do, and now I know my good friend Martha Roby is going to come who... I want her to get home and see her children this weekend. <laughs> She's got the sweetest children. So thank you, Renee. And I'll tell you, Diane is doing a wonderful job with recruiting over at the NRCC. I mean, she has she has met with and talked with so many women, and you know, really, we're trying so hard to to get that effort. And she's she's really heading it up and doing a great job. And yes, I do want to introduce, um, last but not least, at all, um, my my good friend Martha Roby. Again, another fellow colleague of ours that was um, elected in 2010. And she is one of those members of Congress. She has small children at home. She has two beautiful children, Margaret and George Roby. And they are absolutely adorable, but you know, there's not a day that goes by that, you know, she, she's like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting her going. Um, it doesn't take a whole lot to get Roby going. <laughs> um, 
But, you know, that's the thing. She didn't have to be asked, though. She saw the call to act. She knew that it was her time. And she did that in her own community back home in, uh, in Montgomery, Alabama. Correct? I'm not wrong in that. Am I? Um, basically, you know, she, there again, saw the need to come. She, what, you were, you were eight weeks postpartum when you were here in Washington, correct? Yeah. She had literally had George, saw the need to, to run for office, and she made that decision. Um, she and Riley Roby both said, you know what, we can do this. We can do this. We'll make it work. You know, she is um, on, she serves on the Education and Workforce Committee, and you sub one of the, don't you, you're subcommittee chair on one of the Education and Workforce Committee? On the Armed Services. On Armed Services. Okay, yeah, I've got that here. I thought you did on Education and Workforce, too. She's on Armed Services. She does subcommit. she is um, subcommittee chair of the Oversight and Investigation. She serves on Agriculture as well, and I mentioned Education and Workforce. Prior to Congress, she's an attorney, and she served on the city council in her hometown. There again, seeing the need to be part of her community and step up, and then there again, we were lucky enough for her to make that decision to come to Washington and, and serve all of you. She's doing a great job. Help me welcome my good friend, Martha Roby. Renee for getting me going early this morning. Faucet's already turned on. We've all been here for a long time, so we're, uh, it's just weird how we all are right now, but Renee, you're, you're great. Um, you're, you're leading us and doing a great job, and of course, Marsha and Diane, I appreciate all of your friendship and, um, and the relationships that we had. I want to just talk about a little bit more about on the recruitment side, just kind of my story. Um, because I didn't ask permission. Um, I was 26, Riley and I were newly married, I was practicing law, and um, there was an open seat on the city council. And I mean, talk about good old boys network, you know. Here comes this 26 year old, and of course I'd grown up in Montgomery, but my last name was different. You know, I didn't, nobody knew who Martha Roby was. And um, I, my husband and I decided we were going to do this, and I just remember the comments that were made a lot of times behind my back, but sometimes to my face, you know, like, it was stunning that, that the thought that a 26-year-old young woman had no business running for city council. Well, what I always tell young ladies is, you don't have to wait your turn. You don't have to take a number and sit down and wait until somebody else tells you it's your turn and we laugh you know it's not a DMV line I mean you know step up to the plate and so we've got to encourage on women to to laugh in the face of the adversity of the good old boys network and say no I'm gonna do this it's it is my turn and I don't have to ask permission from anybody but the other thing is the balance that comes from women believing in their minds that they have to choose between running for office and being a mom and a mother. Now, you don't have to choose, you can do both, and it's hard. Um, I was telling the folks at my table, Margaret, my eight-year-old daughter, on her own, without any influence of her mother directly, decided yesterday that she's running for student council today, and she's giving a speech today in front of the entire student body, and she practiced for me over FaceTime last night. 
And while her brother was in his Spider-Man costume running around. <laughs> you know, it's hard. And it rips, you know, being away from your kids is tough. Um, but the fact that my daughter on her own wanted to be a leader in her classroom in the third grade at Forest Avenue Elementary School means we must be doing something right. And so when I speak to young women and we're trying to get more women to come join us, the message is you don't have to choose. You gotta have a good support network here <laughs> and back home. You've gotta have people that will help you. I mean, Hillary Clinton got it right when she said it takes a village, but choose your village. Make sure you've got, got people around you that you want. Um, three things though, real quick, that I think that we need to take away from, from the last election. You know, we've all sat around at the Women's Policy Committee. What, <clears throat> what do we need to do differently to um, appeal to women, not only to run, but to vote um, and to vote with us. And I think there's three things. We don't go Democrat light. We stay true to who we are. Um, but we have to start listening. I think we don't spend enough time listening uh, to the people that we're trying to draw in to our party and our beliefs. We've got to listen. We have to, number two, we have to stop blaming the other side. We have to be what we are, and that's the party of ideas and solutions. And so when we go out there and we say, Obamacare's wrong, we gotta say, but here's what's right. And we have, but we have to re resonate, that has to resonate more with the American people. And then lastly, I believe we have to preach beyond the choir. Um, we all thought, everybody in this room thought we were gonna win the election, at least I did. And, and I think part of the reason is that we, um, we only hear each other and we're not, we're not uh, speaking to the people in the grocery store checkout line that may have different political views than us, but, um, but we need to engage in that conversation. I'll tell you, I did an interview <laughs> for Politico and I was saying these same things. And I said, we've got to preach beyond the choir loft. And then the headline on the bottom, so they, you know, they do the, they, they put your picture on the bottom and it was this awful picture and then this big, bold, and it said, you know, Martha Roby says we need to preach beyond the firewall. <laughs> I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. I did a telephone interview and with my accent and apparently this reporter does not go to church either. <laughs> beyond the choir law and she wrote firewall <laughs> anyway those are just my thoughts I love being here and I love being with these ladies this morning and I know every one of you here balances work and family and you certainly understand the pools but we've got to encourage women um, to that they can they can they don't have to choose they can do this thank you prepared questions but um, there may be questions out in the audience so if anyone have a question you know before um, I go into what we have if, if there are other questions out there um, you know have put your hand up because um, I would rather hear from you if you have a question than, than what we have all right well then we'll just go with what we have first question is for is for uh, Marsha Marsha has been the one who is really headed up the delay of Obamacare uh, uh, perspective, the strategy that we have, which is, you know, yeah, we're defunding it, 
you're taking it apart. I mentioned that seven bills have been actually written into law that actually changes Obamacare. Uh, but she's really heading up the, the uh, perspective from the delay um, issue. And so I want you to talk a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, the reason we have gravitated toward delay is because this was the president's strategy himself. And when you look at where we are in the implementation framework of Obamacare, the president and administration have chosen to make 19 different delays of Obamacare. 19 times they have delayed different components of the law. The problem they have is they do not have this authority. We are a nation of laws. We abide by the rule of law. You cannot pick and choose what you want to delay. You have to come back to Congress. So we felt that an appropriate thing to do is to say, look, if you're going to pick and choose and issue delays, let's delay the entire program for a one-year period of time and continue to work on this because obviously it's not ready for prime time. Every business out there has looked at launching some new division, product, project. Many times in my marketing company we would be working with someone and we would suspend a launch for a period of time until we felt like either the environment was better or our launch structure was more concise and tightly knitted. And what we have seen with Obamacare is that it is not ready for this. So that is how we came about to the process of delaying it all for a year and then beginning to segment it, delaying the employer mandate and individual mandate, delaying the device tax, which is very destructive to jobs in the economy, <clears throat> pardon me, and to research and development in the country, and then drawing the public's attention to the fact that the president has chosen this actions. The delays are on top of the 1,200 waivers that the president chose to give to individuals. He did waivers before he started doing delays. So we will continue to look at different components of this as we try to work through the CR, try to work through the debt ceiling, and get the federal government back open for business. Great. Thank you. Um, next question is for um, Diane Black. And again, this, this has to do with Obamacare as well. Um, you know, Diane is doing incredible work on the Ways and Means Committee, and she has really put forward many pieces of legislation and highlighting Obamacare and the, and really the downfalls that, that are in it as far as healthcare goes and with her you know history in healthcare uh, working in the real world knowing what works if you can just you know give us a little bit more information about what your major concerns are about the you know the actual implementation of Obamacare and and what we can do better sure um, I have been looking at this very closely for now about three and a half maybe four months. Uh, the implementation process and first thing that really came um, to my eye that concerned me so much was the data services hub and this hub puts together about seven it's continuing to grow maybe seven eight different uh, departments where our most personal information is going to be out there and available for all the people that have access to this hub um, first of all that should concern us just the fact that we have uh, security breaches all over the place and 
to look at GAO and have them say, this is not ready. They have not done what they need to do to ensure us that all of this information that they have, whether it's our social security number or our healthcare information, um, Department of Justice, Homeland Security, all of these different departments coming together with our information that is going to be used uh, according to at least the way in which it's supposed to work, which we know it did not work that way when it was uh, yesterday came about online. But states have the ability to come in and out of this hub. Uh, we also have individuals called navigators who, by the way, have no educational background um, in the healthcare field. They don't have to have. They don't even have to have a high school education. They have 20 hours worth of, um, of in-service on the entire program, which by the way, I printed off this and it's in my binder. I hold it up at committee meetings and when I do uh, floor speeches, it's this big. It's the size of a textbook. I have read the entire thing. There's no way someone with no background can understand this. So we've got navigators out there, no background checks, so you could be a felon and be a navigator and have access to my social security number, my bank accounts. These are huge security issues. And that's the reason why I had two bills and also the verification piece. You know, two of the major planks of the President's bill. One is that you'd be able to find out if somebody had an employer-sponsored insurance. He, of course, delayed that for a year. And then in, uh, on July the 4th, they came out with a 600-page rule right in the middle on page 356 for those geeks like me that are reading this stuff. <laughs> I find out that they've now delayed the verification, which means you can get a subsidy without having your income verified. Marcia and I come from a state where this was tried. It's called TenCare. It about bankrupted our state. We know we have people that self-attested on their income in our state and, uh, and they got the subsidies and there was all kinds of fraud, and waste and abuse there. So it's the whole security issue that I am so concerned about and what will eventually happen is this will implode. We saw it happen in our state, it took about 12 years. Here's the problem, how much collateral damage will it take before it implodes? People's ID being stolen, um, the, the waste that the hardworking taxpayers are going to have to pay in order for someone uh, self-attesting and making more money than what they self-attest. So these are major issues that we have raised and uh, it doesn't seem like the media really wants to grab onto this and show the American public how this truly is, as Marcia says, ready for prime time. Great, thank you, Diane. And now, um, I, the last question I have is for Martha. You know, Martha um, did a great job talking about how we need to be reaching out to women, especially to run for office. But one of the things, um, one of the perspectives that she really brings in, in policy, um, especially on the Education and Workforce um, Committee, of course, you know, she, she just chaired a subcommittee hearing on Benghazi uh, about two weeks ago, which I, you know, she did an incredible job on that. So, you know, it isn't just about, you know, table issues that we're, that we're talking about that the women are carrying. Um, it's, it's some of those very, very important national defense issues as well. Um, but she's doing a lot of work in education and workforce, and I do want um, her to talk a little bit more about that perspective that she has with legislation and some of the things that the Education and Workforce Committee has done to really be you know, reaching out to women with our policies. Well, thanks, Renee. We, the the um, Education and Workforce Committee has been pretty busy um, from a legislative standpoint. You know, we passed um, through the House the 
um, reforms to No Child Left Behind through the Student Success Act, which is really great. It really gets the federal government out of the way of dictating to our states how to educate our children, um, which is something that we, the, the Republicans on that committee have championed. Um, but the other thing that I think was really important was the bill that was mentioned uh, at the beginning, the Working Families Flexibility Act. This is very simple legislation. It's an amendment to the Fair Labor Standards Act uh, that just says to an employer, if you so choose to offer as a benefit to your employees, uh, you can, the option for your employees to take um, pay time off in lieu of cash payments for overtime. Um, completely voluntary, not mandated to the employer that they have to, but if the employer chooses to, then it's only at the ask of the employee uh, to take that time. The employer cannot tell an employee that you have to take accrued overtime for time off in lieu of cash payments. So only the employee can ask for this if their lifestyle so dictates that they would want that paid time off, that hour and a half time off for every hour of overtime accrued. And there's lots of protections in the bill for the employee. Uh, to ensure that, that this is not abused by the employer. This is a very, very simple thing. It doesn't solve our debt and deficit problems. We know that. But when we're in the midst of these battles up here on these big things like CR and sequester and, and, these, and, and the debt ceiling, shouldn't we, or shouldn't our party be trying to make life a little bit easier for working families? We have an opportunity to do that, and under Eric Cantor's uh, leadership on his Making Life Work initiative, this Working Family Flexibility Act came into play. So I was honored to have the opportunity to carry this bill because as a mom, with so many tugs and pulls, I understand that the hourly worker that is trying to balance an aging parent or a child, um, maybe just want to coach the soccer team on Thursdays, whatever it may be, uh, we had a witness before our committee that takes a, a, a um, trip with her church to Nicaragua, a, a missions trip with her church to Nicaragua every summer, and uh, she wants to be able to do this. The public sector has been able to do this for many, many, many years. And the point is, like so many other things, including Obamacare, if it's good enough for X, why is it not good enough for, if it's good enough for um, the public sector for federal, state, and, and, and municipal employees, why is it not good enough for the hourly wage earner in the private sector? And so this is just a, a little thing, but it's something that we feel like could, could really help American families. And we actually are getting a little interest in the Senate about maybe um, picking up the bill that we passed in the House. So we're going to continue to push this, and hopefully maybe I'll get a bill signed in a law. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Martha. Are there any other questions? Oh, I see hands going up. Yes, ma'am. Well, most important, I'd love to hear how your daughter's uh, election turns yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. we, I'll you, put it on Twitter. How about that? I told her when I called her a minute ago before, I said, but here's the most important thing. If you don't win, it's just not... The, the time it's not God's time for you but Margaret just go do your best and then my sister told her just to promise everybody free cookies in the <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Well, you know, what I will say, um, if you don't mind, I, I, I will be happy to answer that. It is a very, very important issue. This is something that we have heard consistently. Um, the picture that you have is that only the one side cares about pre-existing conditions, you know, because that's part of the argument that we're experiencing right now is, oh, those Republicans, they don't care about pre-existing conditions. Well, in fact, I will tell you how much we care about it. One, I don't know if you realize this, but the high-risk pool at the federal level that has existed, um, that was actually part implemented with um, the advancement of Obamacare, they actually took the funding from that, and when I say they, I mean the administration and the, the Democrats, took the funding, HHS, from the high-risk pools um, back in February, and they took that money now and they put it towards um, advertising for Obamacare. So they have literally cut people off from the high-risk pools that would cover pre-existing conditions. But one of the things that we've done, I'm a member of the Republican Study Committee, and we actually have a replacement bill, um, the Health Care Reform Act. We rolled it out a couple of weeks ago, and one of the issues that we deal with in it, as we have heard from the American people, as important as it is for the pre-existing conditions, we actually have a high-risk pool, $25 billion committed to this over 10 years that will help cover those individuals with pre-existing conditions until they can get a policy in place. So we are addressing the issue as well. It is very important. It does affect you know, many individuals. Their cost for, for insurance is very, very high, as you know. And, um, and we want to make sure that that situation is solved too. And what we're hoping is over time, with all the other reforms that we put in place with the American Healthcare uh, Reform Act, we'll actually, over time, get rid of the issue of pre-existing conditions because we will bridge that time that, that Americans will have. Just a quick addition to that, as we've looked at delay, the one-year delay in order to delay all the taxes, fees, penalties, mandates, delay the program. We did not delay the pre-existing conditions pool and the 26-year-old uh, allowance. That's the, other, that's the other big issue is keeping um, you know, our dependents to age 26. Personally, I would like for them to have a job of their own, their own health care plan. But as it is right now, many are going home to live with their parents, so it unfortunately is necessary. So. I saw another hand up. Yes, sir. Yes, I mean, uh, I would have to concur. Obviously, everything you've said about the Obama health care law is just not going to work and it's going to crash you down its own weight. But having accept, you know, accepting that, is it good politics to try to derail it now? rather than letting it just proceed and having the American people do their verdict. And there, as you are all aware, there's historical precedent for this. There was the catastrophic health care law back about 1990, which went into effect and the seniors left in arms, and within a matter of months it was repealed. So I ask that as a matter of politics rather than policy. Right. What we have to do is look at what happened in Tennessee with TennCare, Massachusetts with um, their blanket coverage and guarantee issue in New Jersey, and you look at the cost escalation. Obamacare started out as an $863 billion 
insurance access program for 40 million people. It has become, the, the note on it now that they gave Diane and I at budget committee, $2.6 trillion. And we haven't even started. Now see, we have the blessing, if you will, of a little bit of insight into what happened in our state. TenCare quadrupled in cost within five years. And then by the time, as Diane mentioned, you hit that 10-year mark, 35.3% of the state budget, and a Democrat governor said, we got to get people off this program and reshape it. We have gone now from that 863 to $2.6 trillion. And what we know is that once these exchanges kick off and these subsidies get out the door, and hospitals are getting less reimbursement as our pharmacies and you, uh, as are our physicians and you change all these policies that you're looking at that delta of what it is actually going to cost you the coverage provision component of Obamacare's 1.8 trillion dollars they are making the 600 billion dollars of cuts in Medicare in order to stand this up so we're looking at what would happen to the free market healthcare delivery system. And what was to have been insurance is now a nationalization of 17% of the U.S. economy. And our opinion is, and what we're hearing from so many of our companies is, let's address this early rather than letting it get away from us or as my Nana Morgan would have said, you better get out here and nip this thing in the bud or it's going to bite you. Just very, very briefly, um, I'm usually very policy oriented. If I lean one way or the other, it's going to be policy side. Um, but I'm going to say a political thing right now. It, this will implode. It cannot work. And um, there will be a lot of collateral damage that will happen. And if we don't do everything we can to make the American people know that we're fighting to protect them, um, whether it's in the cost or whether it's in the security of their information or keeping a health care policy that they can afford that they, that they like, when this thing does implode, they'll look back and go, why didn't you try to do something? You didn't do anything to help protect me. Now my ID is stolen. I don't have any insurance. And, all the costs have gone up, and I think that's why politically you got to fight for everything you can. The delay was a great piece because the president has already delayed two of the major planks of his own bill, employer mandate and the verification. They are the major planks. If you don't have insurance, you can go to the exchange. If you verify that you have the income, you get the subsidy. Neither of those two things are working. So I, I think the delay was at least a good try, but I think politically we've got to do everything we can to tell the American people, we tried. Yes. I've got a question. The press loves to play out that Republicans are divided on strategy going forward, and you know Democrats are united and singing out the same sheet of music. Where you've got 20 or so Republicans demanding this and 12 moderates demanding this. Is it as bad as the press likes to make out to be, or is there is it not as bad? And what are you doing to kind of? <laughs> I'll tell you what I've been telling the media when they ask me this. Um, we in our conference are really individual thinkers, but beyond that, America is very different. Uh, we are in a red state. These guys that right now are in these northeastern states, they're our majority makers. These guys are getting beat up pretty heavily. 
So you represent the district, and, and that's what they're doing when they come out and say, look, this is what my district wants. But if you look at the votes that have been put up on the board, we're together. There may be some people that fall off here or there, but we've got to honor the fact that you represent your district. That's what representation's all about. And you know the other thing in our conference that I found this even at the state level, the Democrats will follow like lemmings. I can get them behind closed doors and say, what do you think about this Social Security Disability Insurance, which by the way, that fund goes to fund in 2016. We've got three years to fix it. They'll say it's horrible. We've got to do something about it. And then we walk out of the back room and we get before the cameras and I think, oh my gosh, this is a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. He's saying something totally different than what he just said back there because they do follow like lemmings. And we are, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, we are really individual thinkers in our conference and our um, leader doesn't say, you're going to do that. It, you know, they allow us to represent our district. But what makes the difference is what's the votes up on the board? We've got the majority up on the board. I just want to say, add two things. Um, first of all, you know, I agree with everything Diane just said. But as a party, and going back to lessons learned from the last election cycle, we can disagree with each other, but we don't need to be out in front of the cameras throwing each other under the bus. There has to be that mutual respect. And if it is about conviction and representation of a district, then let it be about that. But it can't be, and, and this has happened too much in the past two years where members of our conference have thrown other members under the bus, sometimes even by name, and we cannot have that public display of infighting. It does nothing to, um, bring us together. The second thing is, it's my hope, my hope, I'm trying to be an optimist, that all these votes that we've put up in the, on the board in the past 72, however many hours, that have been over 220 Republican votes, that some of these folks that have consistently been the no voters, for the first time might feel what it's like to govern and it feels good <laughs> when you're leading. And so it's my hope that maybe through this process that some of these, um, the, the folks that have done what I've said we shouldn't be doing will, will maybe be um, you know, more likely to, I mean, you gotta feel what it, it's hard to govern, it's hard to make tough decisions, but I think maybe our conference has grown through this process and it's my hope that the feeling of of leadership and governing may resonate um, with, with what you've pointed out. You know, I'll just expand on that too. Even not so much within our own conference, but even, you know, with working with our Democrat colleagues. I know many times, you know, on the 24-hour news cycle, it looks like we're at each other. And right now, if you, if you watch the debate going on on the House floor, it definitely seems that way. But we, we actually all get along very well as, you know, as well. Um, we, we are very respectful. We, were, we you know, really care about each other. And, um, you know, and it, it, I know sometimes the media doesn't reflect that, but that's also something I'd like to touch on. I have, here we go, yes? I saw another hand too. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. So an unfair question I know, and I asked Representative Blackburn earlier this question, which is unfair, but what is the way out? How do we move forward as a country and get past the shutdown, get past the debt ceiling? How are we going to find a compromise, um, you know, to help the country 
I'll let Marcia, as our, our, our senior member here, I'm going to let her address that. Well, and I think that's the question that everybody is wanting to know. What is the end game? And if I were, if they were a marketing client before we started down, I would have said, this is the goal, this is the end game. Here's the goal, is to make certain that we get the federal government's out of control spending under control and that we deal with the problems of Obamacare on the front end because it is the driver of our growth in spending, that accelerated growth. CBO says within 10 years it's going to be 14% of the federal budget. Now, that's, we've got to say this is what we're doing. The end game is reframing what we are doing right now. It is about out-of-control spending for the federal government. It's about fairness for the American people. We continue to bring these forward and shame on Harry Reid if he refuses to sit at the negotiating table and work things out on behalf of the American people. His constituents in this country deserve better than that. And bit by bit, the American people are realizing this. They expect that individuals are going to be cordial, that they are going to do their job, that they're going to do it in a respectful manner, and I think their patience will wear very thin with that after another week or so. Last, I think this will probably be our last question. So of the work that you're doing, coaching your male colleagues on how to better communicate is very important, and it's not just the principles and policies that we stand for, but the language and tone and tenor we use to communicate them. You know, men, we like dogs, we are stubborn, but we are trainable. And, and I'm curious, uh, uh, you know, Ann Wagner, your colleague, has talked about you know helping male colleagues envision how they would communicate a message to a single mom who's got to get her kids fed, bathed, and to bed alone. And that changes their perception of how to communicate. I'm curious what your experiences have been, what, what tools and techniques you've used with your male colleagues to help them understand these concepts. Well, I, I don't, I'm not the expert. I'll let somebody else answer that part of your question as far as co the coaching part. But one of the things that we've done and, and that Renee is working on is getting uh, some of our male colleagues to be co-associated with the, the Women's policy. policy Committee so they have access to the same information that we're sharing with each other. But one of the things that I try to stress with my male colleagues is if you don't know what to say, don't say it and come find one of us. <laughs> There's no reason for some of our male members to be out front on certain issues. But at the same time, we have to be out front on issues that are not just within the box that Diane talked about earlier. Um, so I would just say, one of the things that I try to emphasize, if you think for one second that it might not be an issue that you need to be talking about, Come find one of us and ask us. We're right there. So um, let me just very briefly tell you that what we're trying to do is to help our guys to not just think with their brain, but, but to express their heart. And we're encouraging them now to learn how to use stories. Women are so much better than that. Let me tell you about so-and-so that I met at the grocery store and what she told me. Or let me tell you about my daughter. Or let me tell you about my wife. And to make it more personal. 
and men are not, um, by inclination, uh, storytellers. And we've got to help them to learn how to tell the story because when you look at this last election, by 80%, the people across the board, whether they were a Democrat, Republican, or Independent, said, Republicans have the ideas of how we can fix this. They have the solutions. But by 80 to 20, we lost 80% by folks saying, they, but they don't care about it. And so if we have the solutions up here, and we can show people that it goes to here, we can win this. But we've got to have our guys understand how to tell those stories and tell them with their heart. And we believe that that will help them in their campaigns. And we've seen them actually take some of this advice this week in the, uh, the CR debate by encouraging them to go read their emails, the things that are coming into them, and take these exact stories and go to the floor and talk about it. And they do that five minutes at a time. And it personalizes it and it humanizes. Yeah, one, one of the things that we keep stressing as well is, and it, this hits on some of what Diane was saying as far as reflecting back to the 2012 election. You know, if you asked, especially women, and, and it would be women, minority groups, another big issue that we've got to do better with, you know, who, you know, who was right on the issues? Well, they said we were right on the issues and the economy and how we need to go about it. But who cared about you? Barack Obama cared about me. Mitt Romney did not care about me. So what we've got to do better is con connect emotionally first. Make sure we're making the point. We, you know, we care about you. We care about this country. We care about your children and your grandchildren. And then go into the fiscal debate. Instead of standing up behind that, you know, that, that grid, that, you know, barcode or that pie chart and, you know, starting right off there, you know, talk about why it's important to every family in America and then use that information as your supportive data. So you've got to start off with the emotion and then go towards, you know, why and how we can get there. So those are the things that we're talking about and it is, it's a process. But it, we're, we're, making, we're making a difference. And I'm practicing this on my husband at home who's a, a, a retired Marine. And believe me, it is not easy to get him to think in this way. But I'm practicing on him so I can do a good job. <laughs>